Well, I'm thrilled to be able to continue in your series through Acts. And you may remember that Luke begins this sequel to his gospel in, by describing his previous book. Do you remember it? All that Jesus began to do and teach. Began to do and teach. There was more to come now in Acts. And he charts it through Acts. The advancement of Jesus' life-giving gospel. This ever-increasing flow of word and spirit. Before I studied theology, I picked a degree that would allow me to play as much rugby as possible and hang out with my friends. And so it was geography and world religions. I hope that hasn't offended anyone. Now, one of the things we did was to study river basins. I used to love the charting of river life. I know, really cool, hey? Perhaps none are more impressive than the Okavango in Botswana. This picture uh, was taken by a crew uh, from one of NASA's expeditions uh, to the Space Center. And the river source comes from a high rainfall zone of southern Angola. And when it reaches its basin in Botswana, you can see what happens. It comes into this dry and arid place, a place where the landscape is struggling to find any life and brings greenery. All of this is, it's not just water here, I don't know if you can see it properly, but all around it is greenery, life. And actually, if you were to chart through the book of Acts, in so many ways, that's what we would see. We'd see that the source is all that Jesus began to do and teach. The cross and the resurrection, the ascension, and the pouring out of his spirit comes, and then it's like the the dams just burst, and all this life-giving water is poured out across the land, starting in Jerusalem, and then Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And isn't it interesting that it looks just like a tree, or a leaf, branching out, bringing more and more life? And actually, the whole Bible does this as well, doesn't it? This is Eden-like life that comes through Christ. And in so many ways, you you could chart it like this and and end up with a map that would look like this. If you were to go all the way through the Bible, you would see that tributaries keep forming. More life-giving water keeps coming, and eventually this dam bursts and acts, and, and we see it just flooding out into this basin, and there's more, and there's more, and there's more, and there's more. In chapter one, Jesus' followers wait as Jesus had instructed. What were they to wait on? The receiving of power. Why were they to receive it? To be Jesus' witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When that power comes from on high in chapter 2, it is just an explosion of life. In that moment, the dry and difficult land of the believer's hearts becomes fertile ground. Bumbling, floundering, jumpy, Peter, suddenly the same guy who was wimping out at telling this little girl that he knew Jesus suddenly has all this power to preach and proclaim the good news of Jesus to thousands, the same people who crucified Christ. A splodge of green starts to appear in Jerusalem as thousands are saved and a devoted, diverse, generous, united, courageous church is born. 
by his spirit, Jesus was continuing to do and to teach. Because this pouring out of his spirit was making people like him. Lewis, our associate pastor, he's much smarter than me. He reminded me of a Danish philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, uh, and some of the words that he had said about this kind of way in which life was lived as the early church. It says, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forward. Like a river totally reliant on what's back upstream, these believers were understanding the world backwards to the cross while moving forward in the Spirit. And that's what we're called to as well. Called to be believers who look constantly back to Christ and what he has done, but continue forward to do and to teach in the name of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we rejoin the story in Acts 4, momentum is continuing to build. And the healing of this 40-something that you heard about last week, who had been born without the use of his lower limbs, is healed. You see uh, Peter and John going up towards the temple. This beggar would have been in a really prominent position. Everyone would have known who he was. And the poor Galileans had no silver or gold to offer. But what they did have was power in the name of Jesus Christ. He healed, and as you're, as you're reading it, you just can't stop thinking, wow, keep going, keep going. More, Lord, we want more, more. This is extraordinary. Don't you feel that when you're reading through it? We're reading through it as a church at the moment, the book of Acts. And you get to that point at the end of chapter 3, just like, wow, is it, is it just going to keep going like this? Jesus' followers must have been so encouraged. The worship was alive. You know, those Sundays, the teaching had power. Keep going, more, Lord. Here's what happened next. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4, and we'll begin in verse 1, and we'll read through it in little chunks. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came up upon them, greatly annoyed Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the, in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Mid-preach, while Peter was still proclaiming, verse 2, the resurrection of the dead, because healing is not an end in itself, right? But a sign that Jesus is the resurrected Christ, come to raise us to new and everlasting life, and one day we'll bring about his new creation and make all things new. And that's why Peter's preaching pressed all the buttons of Jerusalem's religious elites. In in, um, the Sadducees and the priests 
and the captain of the temple guard who march in, they are ready for a confrontation. Why? Why are they greatly annoyed? I mean, sheesh, way to kill the mood, guys. Last week, um, our pastoral assistant preached an incredibly faithful, clear, and moving sermon. Our worship team had led us into the presence of God. Someone brought a timely prophetic word. People came forward for prayer asking for healing. A couple of new believers joined us at the communion table. Now, those Sundays aren't as frequent as I would like, but maybe we felt a little bit like how these believers would have felt right before the interruption. Oh, wow. This is so great. All the fuzzy feelings. I stood up at the end, I thank God, and led us in a prayer of thanksgiving to him for all that he was doing, that he had brought about this word and spirit church that we had dreamed about. And then, when the meeting was over, I stepped outside. Everything's tidied up, ready to go. I'm ready for my lunch, ready to talk about how amazing that was over my lunch. And outside, there's this young guy in our church who is being confronted by this guy who is just off on something, and he's grabbing hold of him and uh, being really aggressive. I'm going, oh, no, here we go. What well, come down. And so I'm thinking, right, well, I need to try and sort this out, try and calm the situation down. And he's, interestingly, he's grabbing hold of his wrists. I'm like, I wonder why he's doing that. Didn't think much of it at the time. It turned out afterwards, I found out that he'd gone forward for prayer for his wrists, and the guy grabbed his wrists and was turning them. And so eventually we got him off him, and um, we start to try and calm this guy down. And he's throwing his bottle about, and he's trying to fight everyone. He's trying to, kind of, uh, trying to get to this guy's car and everything, trying to smash the windows and things. And uh, he then gets in my face. He says... I know what this guy's doing to you all. He's brainwashing you. And I'm going, how does he know that I preach and teach? Like, he has no association with our church. So it's kind of strange. And one of the other guys who was with me, thankfully there were two bigger guys than me with me. And um, he, like, kind of touches his shoulder and says, look, we love you. We, you know, and he's trying to help him see, like, we, we're for you. And uh, he goes, it's burning. It's burning. Get off me. I'm going to burn up. Get away from me. And um, a couple of other things happened, and we realized there's a bit more to this than just someone who's off his face on something. The enemy does not like it when God is on the move and taking territory and demolishing strongholds. He does not like it when people are being challenged out of their worldview and taken from it and saved and coming into the light and seeing the glories and the riches of the gospel. So whatever form opposition might come in, we need to be ready. In Acts 4, it's the Sadducees leading a crackdown on these upstarts because belief in Jesus would kill their narrative. Not only did they not believe in bodily resurrection, if you went to Sunday school, you'll know that they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. 
But they believed the messianic, some of you are just catching up with that one, messianic era had been underway since the Maccabean revolt, which was 170 years prior to the birth of Jesus. So they'd been careful not to get anywhere near this idea that there could be another Messiah coming. So the Sadducees are really ticked off. And all this fuss in Jerusalem, they're thinking, come on, what do you guys think you're doing? We're the religious elites. You're the ordinary unschooled Galileans. What do you think? This is our city. They'd been careful about rabbinical ordination as well. And so these untrained Galileans are like just the worst. Now, Jesus had promised all these things that we've seen in chapters 1, 2, and 3. He's told of the joy of his kingdom advancing by his spirit. But he was also clear that opposition was to be expected. If you've got a Bible with you, turn to Luke chapter 21. And we'll see in this previous account of Luke's, from verse 12, what Jesus had said. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. This was the beginning of persecution, and Jesus had said, expect it. This is the moment that his followers realize the momentum that the gospel will bring isn't all about fuzzy feelings. When opposition comes, we are still to keep going. Early on in Acts, it's easy to go, keep going, this is so exciting, keep going. Still, when opposition comes, keep going. But when we do, we will see strongholds demolished and breakthroughs taking place in our cities. That's why the results of studies on Christian growth shouldn't surprise us. I don't know if you saw this one, but Gordon Cornwell University conducted a study called Christianity in its Global Context, which took stats between 1970 and 2022, and they found some extraordinarily encouraging things. Lots of green splodges on the map. Lots of tributaries being formed around the world. Today, around 2.6 billion people identify as Christians, and by 2050, that number is expected to top 3.33 billion. Let's just put that in perspective for in the U- when we're in the UK. <laughs> the church is growing. Imagine this, 40 or 50 years ago. The four countries where Christianity is growing most quickly are these. Saudi Arabia, the UAE, China, and fastest of all, Nepal. In China, the annual average growth rate 
is 10.8%. And any time now, there will be more Christians in China than there are in America. Let it encourage you that in the hard places, places full of opposition with institutions and power that seemed impenetrable, where people said it will never happen, Jesus has flooded in by his Spirit and brought life. After a night in jail, verse 6, the big hitters arrive. They come to really grill them now. Peter and John are put in front of the Sanhedrin. It would have been 71 members in a semicircle. Can you imagine? The most educated and powerful men in the land. And there they are, these two fishermen who Jesus called to change the world. By what power or name do you do this, verse 7? Now that question sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's it's almost exactly the same question Jesus is asked by the religious elites in Luke 20 after he's cleansed the temple. In response... If you remember, Jesus compared these religious elites to tenants entrusted with vineyards who rejected the servants sent by the landowner to come and get the yield that the landowner deserved. Shockingly, they didn't just reject the servants, they also rejected the son of the landowner. And what Jesus was saying is, I'm the son. Not only did you reject the prophets, you rejected the Messiah. And he doesn't mess about here, Jesus. He said that this rejection would mean that the temple, the whole structure of worship, would fall down on them and crush them. Peter couldn't have known they were going to ask this exact same question. And the words he then gives makes what he had to say all the more extraordinary. We need to keep going when we're opposed by Jesus. Let's find out how Peter responds. Join me in verse 8 of Acts 4. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has healed? By what means this man has been healed. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among them by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evidence to all the inhabitant to evidence to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. 
But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had no further threat, When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. With one word, and then the next, Peter finds the courage to keep going. As John said, he would do in the passage we read earlier in Luke 21, he gives them the words. How? By this filling of the Holy Spirit. By a rushing of water, Jesus continues to do and to teach. A new tributary is forming. It is, as Peter proclaims before these powerful men, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that they both perform miraculous signs, like this one, this healing, And they proclaim the word of God with great power. Now, just a a little note here, okay? If you're a preacher, or you're someone who might want to give the preacher a little bit of advice, this is not your proof text to say, don't worry about preparation. It's fine. The Lord's going to give you the words that you need to speak. No, no. The context of this is when you're under persecution and you're being asked particular questions, then the Lord will give you the words that you need as His Spirit fills you. Okay? Remember, 1 Timothy 4, 6, uh, 16, Watch your life and doctrine closely, Paul says to Timothy. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Okay, little note, done. Peter chooses the same passage Jesus had taught in the run-up to his turning over of those tables. Psalm 118, verse 22. He takes Jesus' teaching prior to that cleansing of the temple and prior to being asked these, uh, difficult quest- this difficult question and proclaims it now in response to that difficult question. Now, the whole system of worship that Peter says to them, you are building, notice that, will fall apart without the very stone you are rejecting, Jesus. You're foolish builders. You're rejecting him. In fact, for the third time, he says, you killed him. Wow. He doesn't mess about. And what he is saying to them is you aren't just rejecting us. You are rejecting the one who made you for true worship, the the one who is the object of true worship, the one who can come and make true worship possible again. Like Jesus, Peter continues in this no-punches-pulled preaching of Jesus. While you reject him, you are condemning yourself. This isn't 
an argument for another strand of legitimate worship that can kind of sit alongside what you already have in Jerusalem. This is exclusive. This is the only way in which you can find true worship. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. Verse 12. So to keep going under the grilling of people like the Sanhedrin who have your lives in your hands takes spirit-filled courage. And when they saw it, these powerful men, they were astonished. Why? Because these unschooled, ordinary men from Unlikelyville are behaving in a way that makes the elites realize they had been with Jesus. Wow, they continue to do and teach. Even when opposition comes, they step forward rather than sidestepping. Just like Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, didn't look left or right, and was willing to do the will of the Father. Here, Peter and John say, oh, by the power of the Spirit, I'm going I'm to do as Christ did. I'm going to step forward towards opposition. I'm not going to try and avoid it. As the Spirit fills them, they remind the Sanhedrin of this Jesus they had killed who had the determination to keep going all the way to the cross. And so now they say, look, we can't help but speak of what we have seen and heard. Here's the mistake I keep running into, a mistake I'm sure you don't make, that Peter and John certainly don't make here. I get amnesia when it comes to who lives in me. I get amnesia when it comes to the power that fills me and the desire of Jesus to use me to continue to do and teach. The source of the very life that is so desperately needed by my neighbors, by the guys I see at the rugby club, by the people that I encounter when I'm out and about, who are so filled with dry and barren land in their hearts, who need the gushing of the Spirit of God who makes much of Jesus and proclaims the gospel, the good news, as we speak it. Oh, how they need it and how we need to realize that Christ in us is the hope of glory. How we need to realize that Jesus has commissioned us to continue to do and teach. We need to see that he has poured out his spirit, not just so we can have an extraordinary time of worship and sense God moving and the power of the preaching, but so that we can go. So that we can encounter opposition and continue to step forward. When you run into opposition, when the music has faded from Sunday... And you find yourself in an uncomfortable position for Jesus. Will you trust him to fill you with his spirit and his words? The temptation for me 
with this guy who was on I don't know what outside our church is protectionism. Oh, how do I, how do I just make sure everyone's okay and they feel safe to come to church and comfortable? Might not use that word, but that's really what I'm saying. What about him? How do we see him saved and set free? How do we see these strongholds knocked down? And to keep going, and he will be with you with his words. But there's a couple of other things that we can do and we can see from this passage. I'm just going to read verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. These threats are real. It's no joke. The Sanhedrin have the power to do what they did to Christ and what we will see happen to Stephen in a few chapters' time. Peter and John would be forgiving for, forgiven for turning to each other on the way out and just whispering, let's get out of here. Running to the hills. I mean, this was serious stuff. But there seems to be no doubt. They know what to do next. The ESV here says they went to their friends. But it's actually a term that's usually used for family and perhaps very close friends. They go to the church and the church is a picture of a family who is not distant, but tight, closely knit. This is their people. The church is new, but this is their people. When opposition comes, we need a community committed to one another as we follow Jesus together. Every one of us will come upon moments in our lives where we will really struggle to continue to keep going in the name of Jesus when some kind of opposition comes. And we need to instinctively go to our family, to run to our people, to God's people. And you know, that's very difficult to do if we don't make the decision now to keep committing to one another even when it's good. If your world starts collapsing around you, but you haven't invested in those relationships, you haven't prioritized what it means to be family, it is really difficult then to become vulnerable and open yourself up and come to people when you're in need. I'm sure you're already doing it. But can I stress to you just how important the family of God is if we want to keep going? This is not an individual sport. We are team. We are together. We are bound. And we are one in Christ. Grace London is not just a family on paper. It's a family who share their lives. And when Peter and John were reunited with their family, what did they do? They prayed. They raised their voices together. Their instinct was to cry out to God, not to psychoanalyze first or reason through the nature of the opposition. It was simply to pray together, to raise those voices, 
And they begin by raising their voices together. And I think it's likely, although we don't really know, that this means they all began praying audibly together, one group of people crying out in one spirit together. And then, probably in time, they start leading one another in specific prayer. We've got to keep going. We've got to do it with our family. Let me read on from verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were together, were gathered together. Let me say that again. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They begin by raising their voices together. And the theme, the first thing that they start to pray for is a little like what we see in Jesus' teaching of prayer. They've obviously listened. Our Father, they begin by looking up, by looking to God, our Father in heaven. Here they say, Lord, Sovereign Lord. And it's actually not the common word that is used for Lord, but one that describes absolute rule. It's the word used perhaps um, uh, perhaps in a way that we would be familiar with. Um, and it's the, the word that's the same root for, for despot. And we might take that word and think, oh, that's a very negative word. But actually in the benevolence of Christ, in the benevolence of God, it is the most beautiful thing. It means ultimately he is in control of all things. That we can trust him, sovereign God. That no matter what happens in our lives, we must remind ourselves that he's in control. Their instinct is, let's pray, and let's pray by praying out to the God we know is in control. So all of this that is going on and this opposition, maybe we just want to think, oh, God can't be in this because it's not nice. But actually, it's cross-shaped. Actually, the sovereignty of God is leading them into this place. It might not be easy to hear that. It might not be easy for us to understand that. But what we can do is trust him and know that he is with us, this Lord, this commander of the Lord's army. That is actually one of the times that it is used in Joshua when uh, you read, if you were to read through the Greek version of the Old Testament, the old Septuagint, 
you would find in there in chapter 5, verse 14 of Joshua, the man called the commander of the army of the Lord, the same word for Lord is used. And we know that although Joshua may well have been Hebrew for Jesus, it was really Jesus who was leading Joshua and Israel's army into the land, advancing into the land when all this opposition was coming at them and they were to bring about this kind of Eden, they were to enter into this Eden-like land where life was to flow and opposition was coming at them and the commander of the Lord's army came to Joshua. And I read back at that and, and we see Jesus. Jesus is leading them. The same is true for us. So we may not be going into the promised land, but we're advancing in the kingdom. And Jesus is the one who leads us out. And he leads us into the face of opposition. So the sovereign Lord, the one who rules over all things, I think he somehow might help us to have some confidence. That is who fills you by his spirit. That is the one who continues to do and teach. The sovereign Lord, the commander of the Lord's army. He leads us out. He leads us into battle. And that's not all. It's also used, this word, in Revelation 6, when the Christian martyrs in heaven cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, now long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Those murdered for their faith in Jesus appeal for justice to be done on the earth on the basis of his unlimited power. So we too can be confident when we are opposed that we are opposed with the sovereign Lord. He stands with us and we reign with him. Does your faith leave you feeling less confident at work with your mates or more? Do you look around London and think, the church is small fry here? Or do you think, no, the sovereign Lord is leading us here? And he is way more powerful than all these institutions of economic growth, of all of the power of this global city. We've been going around London amazed in the last couple of days. But man, if Jesus appeared, people would be far more amazed. There is so much more power in the name of Jesus than anything in this city. The resurrected Christ is our leader, our commander. He is the only one we would ever want to have absolute power because he is absolute love. The powers of the Sanhedrin, of these powerful religious elites in cahoots with the Roman Empire, are subject to him. Even where evil seems to be prevailing, we are with Christ like dying seeds who produce life. So even if it gets to that, we can trust him. We can choose proclamation and not preservation because Jesus is the power of our prayers. So now that they have reminded one another of the subjection of the world to the risen power of Christ, we might expect them to 
ask under these threats to be maybe excused, taken out of the way of harm. But that's not what they pray. They don't go, help, Lord, make it stop. That's what I'd be tempted to pray. They ask for more boldness to preach and power to perform signs and wonders. How do you pray when opposition comes? When you think, ah, this person that I'm speaking to right now, they, they've just lost all respect for me now that I've told them I'm a Christian. When, when something even as simple as that happens, what is your response? Is it, is it to curl up? Or is it, no, the sovereign Lord is with me. Honestly, I was saying this to Lindsay yesterday. One of the places that I struggle most with this is outside the school gate. <laughs> I, I get into conversation with people and they often ask me what, my, what I do. And it's a gr- great excuse for a brilliant conversation. Um, but more and more, and this is certainly true in Glasgow, it probably is true here too. More and more, when I say that, there's not a kind of interest, a kind of keen, oh, that's very, that's very interesting. I'd love to hear a bit more about that. It's a, uh, all right. <laughs> and then you can see them. How do I change the conversation? I don't want to talk about his job and what he does in the church and all this, ah, oh, Jesus stuff. In those moments, do we trust the power of Jesus or do we submit to their opinion of us? Would you burst? Would you, would you believe that Jesus could burst into that person's life with living waters. My encouragement to you is to pray that you would see what Jesus wants to do and teach through you to the most unlikely of people. Verse 31, their amen was met with an earthquake, a filling of the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word word boldly. When the Spirit comes, he does not only bring comfort, but courage. He changes the landscapes of our hearts, just like an earthquake changes the landscape. He changes the spiritual landscapes of our cities. must believe that when we come in prayer. Like Peter and John had been filled with the Spirit to speak the Word of God boldly, all the believers now experience a similar empowering to speak. So this isn't just the leaders. So if you're sitting there and thinking, yeah, that's all very good for Jeremy and Andrew and the other leaders, like, I get that. That's cool. Let's pray for them. Be bold, guys. No, this was an empowerment, not just for the leaders, which we've already seen. This now is an empowerment for all the people. And you're going to follow this story through Acts. And even when persecution comes, you're going to see that the church spreads out all across the nations and they continue in boldness. That's you. All of us. A priesthood with, of power. It's not just for the professionals. We are called to continue in the mission of Christ together to be filled with the Spirit and boldly share our faith. And so, as we keep going, as we are opposed like Jesus, 
receive words from Jesus. Go with the family of Jesus. Trust in Jesus as your sovereign Lord. And I'd love for us now to just take a moment to wait on the power of God for courage. Because if you're like me, you need some more. Can we stand together?